This is Paul Spellman. Welcome back to my podcast. This is podcast number 10. Of uh, I have a story about that. It's been a while since I had my last podcast. I hope you uh, are still uh, listening in. i um, been working on several other projects going on. Got a couple more coming up, but uh, it's uh, now the end of October. It's been uh, nine months that we've been working on these uh, podcasts, and now this is number 10. I'm going to talk about uh, Spindletop, the oil boom of 1901 outside of Beaumont, Texas. And before I do that, I just want to uh, I want to say that uh, the next one I'm going to do, I'll probably do one more in, in November, uh, and that podcast is probably going to have to do with a little bit of a spoiler alert of a new historical novel that I'm thinking about writing in the year 2020. It's a sequel to the uh, novel I wrote uh, a few years ago called The uh, Murder of William Marsh Rice, and I've had a lot of people who uh, enjoyed the book very much and wanted to know what was going to happen next. So I've been working on that a little bit, doing some research uh, along the way this fall, and may start working on that in January or February. If I do that, I'm not sure I'll have time to be doing very many podcasts, but the next podcast, number 11, I think I'll talk a little bit about what I'm working on and what that book might look like and what some of the storyline is going to be. hope you'll find that interesting as well. But today I want to talk about uh, one of the most remarkable uh, changes in Texas and American, and for that matter, world history, at the very turn of the century in the year 1901. The discovery of the oil fields beneath Spindletop Hill, south of Beaumont, Texas, with the Lucas Oil Well number 1 gushing on January 10th of 1901. A little background uh, along the way, when I was first starting to work on this, it was actually uh, working with the 100th anniversary, the centennial of the uh, Spindletop occasion. And so uh, I was uh, interested in uh, working on that. I had just finished publishing a book with Texas A&M Press uh, on a Texas history topic, and the centennial was coming up. And the A&M Press folks were interested in getting a book out, if they could, uh, related to a Spindletop. And so since we had just been working on a book together, they asked if I might be interested. And uh, because I had a little bit of background uh, in the oil and gas industry, not so much in terms of career, but just a little bit of knowledge about it, I said I would give that a try. I knew at the time, as I was beginning to do the research, that there was already uh, an excellent book that had been written well, well back in the 1950s by Michael Halbooty and Ed Clark called Spindletop. And that was sort of the definitive story about uh, what had happened leading up to and immediately following uh, the um, Spindletop Gusher in January of 1901. And I had read the book. I had read it uh, as a graduate student and had gone back through it again. And so I, I picked it off my shelf and went back through it one more time. And it's it's an, a wonderful book and it's a great rendition. And I'll tell you a little bit about Michael, Michael Halbooty in a minute. But I just felt like there was some more stories to be told. I wasn't quite sure how that was going to all uh, work itself out. But I just thought um, I'd at least give it a try, see if I could take a different perspective, a different approach uh, to this particular book, especially given the fact that it was going to be the centennial. I was planning to attend that 
anyway, and uh, this might be a good way of, um, of working towards that uh, objective. So one of the things I did, just to start off with, was I thought, well now, um, I wonder if I could go have a chat with these authors who had written that book back in the 1950s. Uh, Clark had passed away, but Michael Halbuti was still alive and well. Let me tell you, uh, Michael Halbuti was uh, quite a character. He was born in 1909 and um, was one of the more famous of the oil wildcatters of his day. Uh, a remarkable character in many different ways who had um, been responsible for the discovery of some 30 to 50 uh, oil fields all around Texas and the Southwest. Had made quite a name for himself over the years, had become a millionaire several times over, and had also gone bankrupt several times over in the oil business. But um, in the latter part of his life, uh, he had put some money aside and was a very, very wealthy man, but continued right up until his last days to be deeply involved and invested in the oil business. In fact, uh, I learned at that time, I was living in Houston, that uh, not but about a mile from my home was Michael Halbuti's office. It was situated right across the street from the famous Houston Galleria uh, and on property that uh, Halbuti owned and a building that he owned. And so I thought, well, you know, I, uh, I ought to go see him. Um, now, I must tell you, uh, related to that, of course, was um, my, uh, my father-in-law at the time uh, was also an oil man. And so I had been, you know, a little, again, uh, introduced, if you will, uh, to the oil business uh, through my father-in-law. And uh, he uh, knew a little bit about uh, Hal Booty himself. And when I said, I, you know, I think I'll go uh, talk with him, um, that was, uh, everybody had kind of a quizzical look on their face when I suggested that, but I thought, well, I don't know what that quite means, but um, they were mentioning something about him being quite a character. That's fine. I said, I'm going to see if I can get in to see him. I didn't realize at the time, and, and looking into it a little bit afterwards, I realized that he was uh, 90 years old at the time, still active, still at his office every day, still working uh, in the business. Uh, he actually passed away about five years later at the not very tender age of 95, uh, still working, as far as I know, uh, right to the end. But at this particular time, I called up and I got his secretary and, and asked if I could make an appointment to come see Mr. Halbuti, and she inquired why, and I told her, and she said uh, that she would uh, look into it, and she called me right back and said, Mr. Halbuti, be glad to see you. Uh, it was, I think it was three or four days later, about two o'clock in the afternoon. So I, uh, I drove uh, the, the mile, eight or ten blocks uh, from my home, and parked there in front of the Michael T. Halbuti building, and uh, walked into this plush and beautiful uh, lobby and office and introduced myself to the secretary. And she pointed me down a long hall about the length of a couple of bowling alleys and said, uh, Mr. Halbuti's office is at the end of the hall. If you'll just go on down there, the door is open. I go in, have a seat. He'll be with you in a minute. Fine. So I, I walked down the hallway into this beautiful office. I, as you can imagine, I mean, uh, that would no, be no big surprise, but it was a huge office and, and impeccably uh, decorated and very neat and clean and so on. And so I went in and I didn't feel like I should uh, 
sit down quite yet, so I just stood there for a moment, and, and Hal Booty walked in from a side office. He was a thin little man with a thin, wiry little mustache, uh, at 90 years old, still quite spry, and uh, walked across that room and gave me a good hard handshake and introduced himself and I to him. I said, well, uh, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I, I've got a project I'm working on, and I thought I might uh, talk with you about it, get a little maybe advice from you or some counsel from you. He said, well, okay. He said, have a seat, uh, Paul. Let's, uh, let's talk about what you're doing. And I said, well, you know, the uh, centennial of the Spindletop oil boom is coming up uh, in about uh, two years. And um, I've been working with the Texas A&M Press uh, about writing a book about that. He said, I said, you know, I, uh, about the oil boom and, and, and so on and doing the background on that. And I've got some different perspectives I'm perhaps thinking about. And, and he had a kind of an odd look on his face, and so I, I paused, and he said, Now, uh, you know, uh, I wrote a book on Spindletop some years ago. And I said, Oh, I know you did, Mr. Halbuti. That's kind of why I'm coming to you. And he looked at me again. He said, Well, if I wrote a book on Spindletop, then why in the hell are you writing one? <laughs> I, all of a sudden, I had no idea. <laughs> why I was writing one. I just was uh, stunned into silence. He kept staring at me like, how dare I write a book since he had already written the definitive one. So I stammered around a little bit. Uh, he seemed to be losing interest pretty quickly in our conversation. And then I mentioned, I said, well, uh, I, the way I go about it is going to be really a very completely different kind of thing. And, uh, and I babbled on for a moment or so. And I said, uh, you know, I... Uh, I had been talking with my father-in-law, uh, Al Boatman, uh, about this, and he went, oh, he said, Al Boatman? I said, uh, yeah. He said, he's your father-in-law? I said, uh, yes, he is. He said, oh, I know Al. He said, well, let's, let's, let's talk a few more minutes. And it seemed to have broken the ice for whatever reasons, his uh, respect for my father-in-law and mine as well. And we had a, a really nice conversation. It went on for maybe another 10 or 15 minutes. We didn't too much talk too much about the book, but he talked a little bit about his own background and about the oil business, and it was a very engaging conversation, which I enjoyed very much, and then when it was done, he was done. He got up, shook my hand, walked out the door, and I made my uh, way uh, back home, but when I got back home, I, uh, I told uh, the family, I said, well, I went to see uh, Michael Halbooty, and they said, well, how'd that go, and so I told them the story, and they just laughed. They weren't a bit surprised. Uh, Hal Booty's quite the character, quite the interesting guy. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad in retrospect that I had an opportunity to meet with him, visit with him uh, before his passing some years uh, after that. And uh, I've always loved telling that story uh, about uh, Hal Booty's reaction to my writing uh, another book on uh, Spindletop. Well, um, with that uh, interesting uh, moment having passed, it was now actually uh, my responsibility, my duty. If I'm going to do this, then I better get to work on it. And uh, and so I began poking around, you know, doing the kind of research you do on uh, any kind of uh, subject like that. And and I was looking here and there, and, and you know, went to the various libraries and archives. I I found a, a several uh, helpful places along the way. I went to Beaumont, uh, Lamar University has. Some great stacks of books 
and uh, theses and dissertations there uh, about uh, spindle top in the oil industry. The Energy Museum that is there as well, very helpful. Uh, the little Gladys City uh, Oil Company Museum, which is also in Beaumont. Uh, those folks were very kind enough to uh, to visit with me for a while. And I, I found bits and pieces and began piecing a lot of the story together. And then I looked at some of the technical books as well and you know, got some background on uh, drilling oil and uh, at the turn of the century uh, and so on. Uh, all of which was very interesting, and I was piling up notes, but it, it wasn't coming together. It just, um, you know, I had lots of pieces, but I thought to myself, in fact, several times I thought, why am I writing this book? Um, Hal Booty and Clark's book is just fine. Everybody knows it. Everybody's read it. Um, why, why would I even be bothering? But I just decided, well, look, I put several months into this. I just need to keep at it. And besides, the A&M Press was really wanting me to do this. So there were some uh, expectations here. So uh, again, I had um, lots of pages and pages of research. I had lots of names. I had lots of uh, technical information uh, sitting around my desk. And, and, and yet uh, there was still something somehow, you know, I guess the... The, just the way I was going to get at it. Uh, there had to be something a little bit different than just going back through what Hal Booty's book already did, just basically telling the story of how all of this came about. I needed a, a little wrinkle of some kind. Well, one of the places, uh, go-to places for Texas historians, um, and it's always been, is uh, what today is called the Center for American History, which is part of the LBJ Presidential Library Complex on the University of Texas campus in Austin. Back in those days, it was called the Barker Texas History Center. And it's still today, even as the Center for American History uh, focuses much of its attention with its archives and documents on Texas history. And I had already done some work there uh, previously when I had been working on my dissertation at the University of Houston. I had done some work at the Barker Texas History Center on the Texas Santa Fe Expedition. And even before that, a number of years earlier, when I was at the University of Texas in Austin doing my uh, master's work, um, I had done some uh, research there at that uh, particular research center. And those folks, uh, so very helpful and uh, a tremendous amount of, of documents and files and so on there. So I drove to uh, Austin and uh, I went over to the Barker Texas History Center and I uh, said hello to the folks that I knew and who knew me from my work that I'd been just doing a year or so earlier. And I said to them, I said, okay, here's what I'm working on. I'm uh, looking at doing a, a book on uh, Spindletop. Uh, it's about a year and a half away here from the centennial. Uh, A&M Press and I would like to have something out in time for that. Um, and so I've come here. I've got lots of stacks of information of one sort or another and just want to start filling in the gaps here. And so they they looked around a little bit. They looked in some of the catalog files and they said, well, we have this... Um, these newspaper articles here, and I said, well, I've already kind of got most of those already recorded in my notes, and but we've got some uh, some articles over here that were in the quarterly and some other journals. I said, well, again, I've uh, pretty much looked through those, exhausted most of those. I've found a lots of, of great information here and there, but that that's pretty much what uh, what I've already got. They said, well, um, one of the staffers said, you know, there uh, we have this uh, collection called the Pioneers of Oil Collection. 
And I said, "Okay, what, what what is that?" And they said, "Well, we're not we're not we're not entirely sure, but um, you know we've got it indexed and filed here, and it's actually over in a couple of file cabinets, uh, sitting over there, actually in the open uh, study uh, room." Um, and they pointed in that direction, and sure enough, there's two uh, double f uh, file folders, uh, file cabinets, uh, sitting there against the wall. And so I walked over there, and uh, sure enough, on the little uh, sign, it said the Pioneers of Oil Collection. So I opened the first file drawer, and, and there's dozens and dozens of files all the way through there, all told in the four drawers probably over 200 uh, files, uh, some with one or two sheets of paper, some with seven or eight or nine or ten sheets of paper, and so on. Still having no idea what I was looking at, I just pulled out the first file. It had a name on it um, that I didn't recognize, and I opened it, and, and what I was looking at was a transcript of an interview um, that was an interview of this person who was named on that particular folder. And I began to read just this one page of this uh, transcript of was clearly an interview because it had the interviewer's name and his question and then the interviewee's name and their response and so on. And they were asking about Spindletop. And this person was responding, talking about his memories of Spindletop. I sat back for a moment and thought about that, and I pulled another folder out, and it was the same, and another one, and another one. And then I began looking back in some of the, uh, the index records here that were in this file cabinet. And what I had discovered, uh, this Pioneers of Oil collection, was in fact this. At the 50th anniversary of Spindletop, in January of 1951, several uh, reporters had attended that particular um, 50th anniversary celebration, of which there were hundreds and hundreds of people who had come to attend. And they had made their way uh, through the crowds and identified a number of people who had actually been there at Spindletop 50 years earlier. Many of them had been children or teenagers who happened to be living in Beaumont at the time. Some were young, 20-year-old uh, wildcatters who had come uh, to Beaumont uh, during the, uh, the oil boom. Uh, others a little bit older. There were some uh, widows uh, of, of men who had been there, and they had lived uh, for a time there uh, near the fields of Spindletop. And, and these reporters had taken these folks aside and over the next several months had uh, tracked them down, sat down with them, and asked them what they remembered about Spindletop 50 years earlier. Some of the memories were a little bit uh, vague and so on, but others were crystal clear, some of the stories they were telling. And particularly interesting were some where, where the, uh, the person being interviewed had been 14 or 15 or 16 years old at the time, looking at this experience through the eyes of a teenager. And again, others, young wildcatters who had shown up from all over the countryside to get in on this oil boom uh, and so on. It was an absolute buried treasure, the pioneers of oil collection. And so I just kept 
uh, looking through these, I, I came back day after day. I spent most of the summer uh, one file folder at a time. And, and through all of these, uh, I gleaned story after story about uh, what had gone on by personal eyewitness accounts of the people who had been there. Now I knew how I was going to put that book together by telling their stories, or by letting them tell their stories, because some of the anecdotes were absolutely marvelous. I mean, without need for editing or, you know, uh, embellishing in any way, shape, or form, these stories were absolutely fabulous. Some were uh, tragic, some were hilarious, some were just uh, high drama along the way, and some were just ordinary stories about ordinary people having to put up with the vagaries of living in these uh, makeshift oil camp towns in and around Beaumont and the Spindletop Hill. Um, and so just the daily kind of living conditions, stories about the, the oil gushers themselves, story about the fires uh, that, uh, that were set upon uh, during this period of time and destroyed parts of the Spindletop uh, fields at one point. Um, there was uh, perspectives from the medical side, people who got sick. There were some doctors uh, who were there and they talked from their perspective. Uh, they remembered uh, going into Beaumont um, and, and how they, the relationship they had with the people who were living there in Beaumont. They talked about the massive crowds. They talked about the literally tens of thousands uh, who had come to Beaumont. And then also there, uh, because after the Spindletop oil gusher, there was also oil then found in, in the nearby uh, areas as well, places like Sour Lake and Batson Prairie and Saratoga. And, and some of the uh, interviews were with people who had gone there as well in 1902, 1903, and 1904. Uh, there were even some uh, who eventually went up to uh, the Humble oil fields after 1904, but I had plenty of stuff by that time, uh, just dealing primarily with Spindletop and then secondarily with some of the stories of Batson, Saratoga, and Sour Lake, which were very similar stories, uh, just in a slightly uh, different uh, setting a few miles away from uh, Beaumont. Well, again, this was essentially what this book became. It, I, I, I titled it Spindletop Boom Days, and it is, in fact, the story of the life of this oil boom come to life through the eyes and the experiences of the people who were actually there. Uh, it's got the technical part to it. It's got the background of the uh, of the oil business in uh, in the United States leading up to it. It's got the stories itself of the actual drilling and so on. Uh, the men who drilled the oil well later wrote their own reminiscences, and I have those in there as well. So again, it's uh, it was far different from the way in which uh, Mr. Halbudi and Mr. Clark had written theirs. Not better, just very very different. And we were able to uh, begin putting it together. The, the next part of the story has to do with, uh, uh, I need to put some photographs in there. There are some standard iconic photographs of the Spindletop Gusher and certainly others that I was able to find here and there at the several museums in Beaumont, uh, some archives there in Austin, and so on. But there was another surprise awaiting for me uh, at the time. And that was over in uh, Liberty, Texas at the Sam Houston Regional Library 
and Resource Center, which is related to the, uh, the Texas State Archives uh, here in Texas. Uh, the uh, Regional Library in Liberty uh, is encased inside this absolutely beautiful home, uh, mansion, if you will, that was in fact a mansion uh, belonging to a Texas governor, Price uh, Daniel, uh, who was our governor back in the mid-20th century. I had purchased over 117 acres of land and built this absolutely beautiful building and in his estate, in his will, bequeathed it to the state of Texas. And it has become the Regional Library and Resource Center uh, there in that part of Southeast Texas. And it certainly would want to be one of the places that I would want to go to to find some information anyway about Saratoga, about the, the pipelines into Port Arthur and, 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 and so on. And so I went there uh, during the course of my uh, research and talked with some, again, some wonderful folks there, the archivists and the other ones who were there, and told them what I was working on. And so they showed me a few of the, you know, the pictures, the photographs they had. And I said, well, those are great. Um, kind of seen them before. They've been in other places here and there. But, you know, I, I really want to put some photographs in there. And they were, so they were looking through their own little indexes. And one of them said, no, wait a minute, we got this, um, we have this uh, file here. And I don't really even know what it is. But it mentions something about uh, oil and, and photographs. And it's dated 1902 or 1903 and I said well I sure would like to take a look at that and they said well we would too because we don't even know what this is so one of the staffers went way back in the back of the bowels of the archives and was gone for kind of a long time while the rest of us were standing around finally uh, she comes back with two shoe boxes old, old shoeboxes wrapped in string uh, together that had been sitting on a back shelf, literally, you know, uh, accumulating dust uh, over however many uh, years. And so she brought these, uh, these shoeboxes and set them down on the counter, and, and the archivist opened one of them up, and inside were um, glass, um, pieces of glass. Um, they were uh, long enough uh, to fit inside this shoebox. They were about a quarter of an inch thick, maybe not quite that thick. And there was a number of them in each of these um, shoeboxes. Well, we, we gingerly pulled that first uh, uh, plate of glass out of the shoebox, and we all kind of stared at it, and there seemed to be some kind of pattern on this glass, and the archivist literally pointed it up to the uh, fluorescent lights, and there was a, a photograph embedded in that uh, uh, pane of glass. And it was a photograph we could see pretty clearly of an oil field. And then we pulled the next one and the next one, and sure enough, there's pictures of some of the people, some of the wildcatters, some of the uh, families, some of the tents, uh, a lot of pictures of the oil derricks. And everybody's looking at each other like, I've never seen any of this before. And nobody really knew what was going on. So we did some more work, realized that um, a photographer from Woodville at one point had gone down there literally during that period of time and taken photographs. But the photographs, the negatives, had been placed on these panes of glass, which we learned as we we're all looking this stuff up at the turn of the century had been 
a process by which uh, photographic negatives could be preserved. But, you know, a hundred years later, we had no idea uh, what to do with these. Well, how, do you, how do you get that negative off of that pane of glass? So we called several professional photographers that the archivists knew there in Liberty, and they had heard of the process before, but they didn't have any fix for us. They didn't have any solution of how you get those negatives off that pane of glass. So in our conversation, um, the, the archivists and the staff and I were just trying to figure out what to do. And, and this is remarkable because <laughs> it's, uh, it's just weird, especially thinking about all these years later. Um, as we were there that day, a delivery came uh, from, the, from the post office of a, a huge box that was a brand new uh, copier and scanner that uh, had been ordered by the library staff two or three months before as part of their uh, materials. Now this is, you know, this is 1999 when this is a brand new kind of uh, machinery that nobody had ever much seen before and knew much how to operate. So we literally, we took this out of the box and we looked at each other and said, no, wait a minute, this is a scanner. We're looking at these plates of glass that are embedded with these negatives. And we thought, well, what, why not give it a try? I mean, we didn't really know what we were doing. We had to put the machine together and, and, and figure out and read the directions of how to work it. And we thought, well, you know, what, what do we have to lose? So we took one of those plates of glass. We laid it on this scanner. And, and we put it on this uh, a plate of glass, and we hit the on button, and the scanner went over and back again, and uh, out came a sheet of paper, and it was a perfect, developed photograph. It was it was as perfect as you could ever imagined it would be, and we we literally stood there and applauded one another. Uh, as we had made this happen. And ultimately, there were nearly three dozen of these uh, plates of glass with uh, uh, negatives on them. We scanned them all and were able to put all of those uh, in the book, Spindletop Boom Days, none of which had ever been seen before, had never been published before, and it was just one more exclamation point uh, to this experience to be able to have these previously uh, unpublished photographs uh, for the book. And Impress got to work on it. It came out in uh, November of 2000 and in January of 2001 I attended the Spindletop uh, ceremony, the uh, Centennial uh, south of Beaumont uh, with a big uh, handful of books on hand of which we signed and sold a whole lot that particular day. Uh, the night before, on January the 9th, a cold front had blown in and it was freezing out there at the outdoor centennial celebration. But a big crowd showed up, uh, some speakers. Uh, I was interviewed by uh, radio and television uh, personalities all day long. It was a fabulous experience, and, and the book has been very popular over the very many years. But it, it, was, uh, it, was, a, it was a great thing from, from beginning to end, from Michael Halbody to the pioneers of oil collection at the Barker, Texas History Center, to plates of glass in a shoebox in Liberty, Texas. Uh, that was a great experience all around. I hope you enjoyed the stories. I've, I've enjoyed telling those again and kind of reminiscing myself 
uh, back along the way. Uh, next up, uh, probably uh, in November sometime, a little uh, heads up on a new historical novel that I'll be working on next year. Until then, I hope you'll keep listening. Tell your friends about the, this podcast. I have a story about that. Uh, take care until uh, we're together again.